we proceed to the consideration of an eighth objection which has been raised against the truthfulness and consistency of the Bible. In connection with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? The eighth objection is this. If the blessed atonement or death of Christ was a literal or exact payment for the accumulated guilt of sinners, past, present, and future, then why does the Bible indicate on every hand that the great majority of men will suffer eternal punishment for their sins, when at the same time it makes it absolutely clear that the Lord Jesus tasted death for all men in the same sense? These are conflicting propositions and cannot by any possibility coexist. One of the three must yield if the other two are to be true, and the Bible vindicated from all inconsistency in this matter. The idea of the atonement of Christ being a literal payment of the penalty due to sinners is not old. It came into prominence during Reformation times and cannot be traced to any common acceptance before some three or four hundred years ago. This view of the atonement is always associated with a strictly judicial view of justification, which also germinated into prominence during Reformation times. Indeed, this is profound to consider. One learned professor, perhaps one of our leading evangelical historians, lamented for a considerable period of time in his lecture the fact that what he regarded as the true nature of justification did not come into systematic statement until Reformation times. Here God is viewed as a judge who has a just claim against man. Sin has incurred a personal debt that must be discharged. The Lord Jesus was thought to have exactly paid this penalty that had accrued unto sinners, and thus they are discharged from God's judicial court as those whose guilt has been fully paid and are saved on the basis of strict justice. For example, a judge declares what I know to be a fact, let us say, that I owe $100 to my neighbor. A friend of mine appears in court and pays $100 to this neighbor on my behalf. The judge declares me free of debt. My neighbor has no longer any claim over me. He has not forgiven me. He has been satisfied as to my obligation. I can claim myself right before him because he has been paid in full. Just so it has been conceived by many in recent centuries that we as sinners owe a penal debt to God, the Father, as a supreme judge over the affairs of men. This debt in the minds of such is not viewed as a governmental indebtedness primarily, but as a personal indebtedness. We have no means, of course, to discharge or pay the debt, and thus must suffer eternal punishment for all the sins committed during our earthly sojourn. 
The Lord Jesus, as a noble friend and benefactor, paid in full all our penal creditments, it is affirmed, since his blessed atonement was made nearly 1950 years ago and is not now being carried on. It stands to reason that if our sins are to be paid for specifically, they can only be paid for on a basis that God absolutely foreknew every sin that men would commit during their entire lifetime, and thus imputed them to Christ in full before they were committed. Thus, while some of our sins are still future to us, they are supposed to be all present to the eternal eye of God. In mass, therefore, they are paid for by Christ bearing the exact punishment due to men. Guilt is discharged in God's final court of justice. Men are justified by strict justice and are declared guiltless. Now this view has some grave complications, for it is plain that all whose debt is paid to the last iota will inerrantly be saved. God will not extract guilt twice over. If our substitute has been punished to the full extent of our deserts, we are liberated, and God cannot also extract the same debt from us on a basis of justice. All for whom Christ died will be saved, if this is a true picture of the judicial dealings of God. But these scriptures make counter-assertions and affirm that there are other conditions of salvation. So we may state the triad of possibilities as follows. In case one, let us set them up in this order. The atonement of Christ, a literal payment for sin. The Bible revealing that all men are not being saved. Therefore, the atonement could not have been made for all men in the same sense, but was limited to some select minority. How can this be escaped from? If the atonement of Christ was a literal payment, and the Bible reveals that all men are not being saved, then it can only be that the atonement was not made for all men in the same sense. And to affirm that it was general and made for all men is not to state the case with precision. As a second case, we may arrange these threefold thoughts as follows. The atonement was a literal payment for sin. It was made for all men in the same sense. Therefore, all men will be saved on a basis of strict justice. None will suffer endlessly for their own sin. Now this was the universalism of a century and a half ago that prevailed through the eastern part of the United States primarily. How can this be escaped from? If the atonement was a literal payment and it was made for all men in the same sense, then it could not be otherwise than that all men would be saved. But the third case we may arrange as follows. The atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ was made for all men in the same sense. 
Secondly, still only a minority are being saved and spared eternal punishment. Therefore, the atonement was not a literal payment or punishment for anyone's sins, but the sufferings of Christ were substituted for the eternal punishment of sinners as a governmental measure so that God may freely pardon past sins when other necessary conditions have been met. It is solemnly believed that this latter presentation is the true representation of biblical truth and indeed relieves the Bible from any charge of contradiction and inconsistency in this most important of all matters. Who can avoid the fact that the atonement was made for all men? And who can avoid the fact that only a minority of human beings are being reconciled to God? Therefore, the only conclusion we can say is that the atonement made possible the salvation of all men, but made certain the salvation of none. Other conditions were to be met, but the atonement in a wonderful way removed all the governmental problems to the forgiveness of sin and now enables God to do what he so wants to do from the very essence of his heart. This is the great and noble and glorious message of the Bible, the Word of God, which reveals a God who is so different than we ourselves as to strike us with great pathos as we consider his loving character, as we consider the way men have injured and broken and grieved the great heart of God, and when we consider the infinite God with his capacity for sorrow and grief in similar way to his capacity for a loving reaction from man's heart, which he certainly was entitled to receive. How solemn the problem becomes, but how glorious is the revelation of the nature of God. So the word of God becomes an exceedingly precious thing. So in the first place, we will establish beyond question that the Bible presents the fact that the blessed atonement of Christ was made for all men in the same sense, using the strongest of all terms in this discussion. What a wonderful discovery this is as we have in the testimony of God's Word that God is no respecter of persons whatsoever and has poured out His love to all men, inviting all men to be saved. He has provided the wonderful atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ for all men in the same sense, so that He may in all sincerity plead with every sinner to be reconciled to Him, to come to Him, in an appropriate attitude of repentance so that the process of faith may be uh, begun by the enlightened drawing of the Holy Spirit of God and that there might be a wonderful reconciliation. In Isaiah chapter 53, that great noble prophecy concerning the sufferings of our blessed Lord made so many hundred years before the event, we have in the sixth verse this profound statement, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Now this is remarkable in that the verse begins and ends with the same Hebrew words, all of us, which plainly affirm that the atonement of Christ was made in the same sense for all who had sinned. The first all certainly cannot be made to apply to all men, and the last all to a select group of individuals who shall be saved through the course of the ages. In the margin there appears a more literal rendering of the great load of sin that our Lord bore. In these words, the Lord made the iniquities of us all to meet on him. And so while all of us, the prophets said, have gone astray and turned to our own selfish way in defiance of the righteous demands and loving kind expectations of God, even so the Lord Jesus Christ took upon his heart the sins of the whole world and died for all. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank thee for such a universal message which thou hast enabled us to proclaim. How exceedingly happy we are to represent thee by reading thy precious word. Now we pray that many may respond to thy kindness, repent of sin, come to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith in his death, and find forgiveness and reconciliation. May many do so in Jesus' name. Amen.